Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Alarm is spreading over the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. Can science offer any clues about how it'll shape the pandemic? Hello and welcome to Babbage, The Economist's weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, a science correspondent at The Economist. Today we're exploring SARS-CoV-2's new shapeshift, Omicron, named after the 15th letter of the Greek alphabet. We'll use scientists' ever-improving understanding of the coronavirus to weigh up the risks and the challenges. For all the focus that we have on the virus itself and all of the variants that crop up, there's a whole other half to the equation of how much damage the virus does, and that's the human immune system. The immune system is basically the ecosystem in which the virus is evolving and spreading around. And we'll ask, how will public health measures adapt to a virus that appears to be here to stay? Joining me to help make sense of all this are Ed Carr, The Economist's deputy editor and COVID czar, and Natasha Loder, our health policy editor and chief of the vaccine nerds. Natasha, Ed, if you close your eyes and think back, we could almost be doing an episode of The Jab, which was, of course, our sister podcast about the vaccine rollout. How have you both been since then, Natasha? I've been great, thanks. I have missed The Jab, so it is great to be back. Life's been coming in waves like the virus itself. It just washes over you again and again. <laughs> um, well, it's great to have you both here. Now, before we get on to the serious discussion of this new variant, let's get something really important straight. I've heard a lot of interesting pronunciations of this new variant. Is it Omicron, Omicron, or something completely different? Ed, what's your sort of take on this? The first thing we debated in our in our editorial session this week was what to call it. And the, the classicists said Omicron, but they, we had a real Greek person with us and she said it was Omicron. So I think we're going to stick with Omicron. Natasha, you agree? Yes, that's absolutely right. That's what the WHO have been saying. Excellent. So I'm glad we've cleared that up. Omicron it is. And I'm looking forward to hearing all your insights about it throughout today's show. First up, though... It's been less than a week since South African scientists informed the World Health Organization that they'd identified a new variant of the coronavirus. But Omicron has already spread to at least 17 countries. The new variant has already surfaced in neighboring Botswana, Hong Kong and Israel. One thing is clear, Omicron is here in Canada with two cases confirmed so far. Britain, Germany and Italy announced their first Omicron cases. They follow Belgium. More countries now clamping down. The WHO designated Omicron as a variant of concern on Friday. And yesterday, it warned that the strain is likely to pose a very high risk globally. 
We shouldn't need another wake-up call. We should all be wide awake to the threat of this virus. But Omicron's very emergence is another reminder that although many of us might think we're done with COVID-19, it's not done with us. And while panic has been spreading along with the virus, there's still much that scientists are scrambling to understand. I think it's important to start at the beginning of the story in South Africa, where there was a rapid increase observed over a very short period of time, about seven days. Sharon Peacock is a professor of public health and microbiology at the University of Cambridge. She also leads COG UK, which is one of the world's largest COVID-19 virus sequencing projects. So going back to the 16th of November 2021, there were just 273 cases in the entire country. But by the weekend, the most recent figures for cases in South Africa had risen to 3,220 new cases, indicating that the rapid rise was continuing. And they appeared to be really focused in a province called Hautang. And Ministry of Health and Scientists went in very, very quickly and they're to be really applauded for that, applied genome sequencing and discovered this new variant called Omicron. Now, do we know anything about how transmissible this variant is? So looking at the transmissibility, what we know is that this particular variant has actually outrun Delta in Hautang province. And so there was a large increase in cases, despite the fact that Delta was there. And so there's a couple of explanations for that. One is that it is indeed more transmissible than Delta. And the alternative is that actually there is immune evasion and so that any kind of naturally induced or vaccine-induced immunity is not as strong as it would be for Delta. But certainly, based on the mutations present, I would predict that it's more transmissible and has an element of evasion of the immune system. What makes Omicron different to the currently wider circulating variant, uh, the Delta variant, which you know the world is now familiar with? What kinds of mutations does it have that are concerning? Well, Omicron is the most mutated variant that we've seen to date. It's got around 50 mutations in its entire genome, but more than 30 of those are really concentrated in the spike protein. That's the part of the virus that interacts with our human cells before the virus gets into them. And the part on that called the receptor binding motif has 10 mutations, which is actually much greater than previous variants of concern. So we know that this is an unusual variant because of the number of mutations. But in addition to that, some of the mutations it carries, we've seen before and we've linked them before with transmissibility or immune evasion. A lot of the mutations, we don't actually know whether they alter function of the virus at the moment, but certainly that the number of mutations are unusual. And this is not a direct descendant of Delta or any of the other variants of concern. I think that scientists are still working out at the moment what each of those mutations mean in combination. And so our knowledge about individual mutations is increasing, but there are so many mutations altogether in this particular variant that we still have to study it in order to understand how those mutations might act in combination. You've already told us about how the strain was detected in South Africa. But what does it all say about the abilities we now have to surveil COVID-19? How is that all going and is it equally distributed? The, the fact that colleagues in South Africa detected this with 
whole genome sequencing so early is a real tribute to their capabilities to do genome sequencing. And so it's really vital that we use sequencing to understand variants of concern. And they were able to alert the world to this new variant. And so people were able to act very quickly. And so it's a fantastic capability that we can use to better understand the viral evolution and what that might mean. But it's not present everywhere across the world. And that is a problem because there may be viral evolution in countries that aren't able to undertake genome sequencing and therefore not able to understand what might be emerging in their own country. You've told us before, Sharon, on this show that it's important not to be alarmist when it comes to new variants. But when do you think we're going to start to know what sort of impact Omicron will have on the pandemic? The neutralisation test that we do in the lab to see whether immunity is affected, at, at least in an experimental system, we're not going to have that data for a couple more weeks. But something we haven't discussed so far is disease severity. There have been some anecdotal reports from South Africa that people affected with Omicron appear to have less severe disease. They had quite mild symptoms, but this was in a young population. And so, again, I think it's important not to speculate on that and actually do the studies to see whether disease severity is equivalent to Delta or different to Delta. Professor Sharon Peacock, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Natasha, Ed, based on what Sharon said and also what you've heard elsewhere, can you give us a sense of how worried you think the world should be about this new strain? Natasha? As a general rule in this pandemic, I've actually made a point of not worrying about new variants when I first hear about them. And that's because our ability to detect them really outstrips our ability to understand them. And we're constantly turning up new forms of the virus that we couldn't possibly have noticed at the start of this. But as we have grown to understand more about the virus, I think it's fair to say that we sort of now know what concerning mutations might look like. And I think Sharon said that quite well, didn't she? That there were a couple that had been tied to issues of concern. So I'm moderately concerned. But I think the big question here is about whether it causes a mild disease or not, because it could possibly be that this variant has lots of nasty features about it, but one redeeming one. Ed, how about you? Did you get concerned over the weekend as the reports of this variant sort of emerged and became much more prevalent? The way I think about this is that this is a variant that's worrying on paper. And whether it actually turns out to be worrying remains to be seen. But governments can't wait until all the results are out, because by then, if it is as bad as people think, it's spreading so fast that lots will already be baked in. So I think the dilemma is that, you know, you have reason to be worried, you don't have conclusive proof, but you have to act before that proof is in. One of the questions I'm interested in is is the sort of balance between transmissibility and, and lethality. I mean, you can imagine that Omicron's less lethal, but more transmissible, and in overall numbers, because there are so many more people who are infected, that still leads to more people falling ill and a proportion of them will have to go to hospital and that could overwhelm hospitals, which feeds into deaths. So it's, it's a complex balance between lots of factors in working out the burden that Omicron will place on society. Many governments have already reacted quite swiftly to the spread of Omicron, for example, stepping up control measures, announcing travel restrictions, particularly from southern African countries. Are they right to be cautious, Ed? I mean, how useful are travel bans now? 
Travel bans are useful only at the very, very beginning, before the disease has seeded itself around the world. The only real way of containing this outbreak, if it turns out to be a bad one, is through track and trace. And each new arrival from a foreign country seeds another instance of a mini-outbreak. So you, you kind of want to limit that. But at a certain stage, most of the new cases are coming from community transfer. At that point, travel bans are completely useless and actually counterproductive. I mean, one of the most important scientists who, who deserves a lot of praise in South Africa tweeted yesterday that he spent his day on the phone trying to get hold of the reagents they need to do to watch over the disease because they weren't being flown in. Well, that's completely self-defeating. Is there anything else that governments can be doing then apart from this? It's quite a draconian step. At least it's something. What countries need to do is to look at what non-pharmaceutical interventions they can introduce internally. So all, all the things we're used to, like mask mandates in public places, also perhaps to encourage people to work from home. And then, of course, we've got vaccine uptake. This is a really good time to remind people to take vaccines, to get their boosters, and actually to make more of an effort on getting kids vaccinated as well in countries that haven't really put a priority on that. And I'm thinking both Britain and also across Europe. And then lastly, rather counterintuitively, it's a good time to remind people to get the flu vaccine because that's going to have an impact on how busy hospitals get over the winter. I completely agree with that. I mean, getting your booster or getting vaccinated for the first time is a no regrets policy. I mean, that's good whether Omicron turns out to be dangerous or not. Now, all of this is very informed speculation and Natasha, Ed and Sharon have all rightly pointed out that we won't know for sure what to expect until epidemiological data emerges over the coming weeks. But for more insights into Omicron, what we can do is look at what we've learnt over the last couple of years about the way the virus affects the human immune system. That's coming up. Just a quick reminder that The Economist's podcast team has launched a new listener survey. This is your big chance to tell us what you think of our show and other Economist podcasts. To participate, go to economist.com slash Babbage Survey. That's all one word, Babbage Survey. Please do take part. Thank you. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. It's likely to be weeks before scientists have enough data to build a clearer picture of the threat posed by Omicron. But their understanding of the coronavirus has come a long way since last winter, when the emergence of the Alpha variant sent the pandemic on an alarming new path. Hal Hodson writes about science and technology for The Economist. For our cover story this week, he'll be investigating the immunology of Omicron and how likely it is to displace the Delta variant. When I caught up with him, one of the first things I wanted to know was how Omicron emerged in the first place. The true answer to that question is that nobody knows. There are a few theories. One is that 
this variant has actually been circulating around in sub-Saharan Africa for a little while, and it just hasn't been spotted on any of the genomic surveillance systems that exist out there. Another is that some individual with a compromised immune system, perhaps somebody who has HIV, has been incubating this virus for a very long time. And that is one of the things that has driven all of these mutations. And another possibility that is sort of less likely but can't be ignored is that the virus has jumped into animals and spilled back out. But the most likely is probably number two, that somebody with a compromised immune system has been hosting a virus and it's been furiously mutating within them for a couple of months. Some people have proposed the idea that because the virus has mutated so much that there's not much space left to mutate anymore. Can you just help us understand that argument and why that doesn't seem to be the case this time? Yeah, so the idea with this is that when you're looking at all of these mutations and all of these possible mutations that could happen on the proteins that make up the bigger spike protein, and you could think about imaginarily swapping in and out any one of those, there's lots of hypothetical mutations. But in reality, the virus is an organism that has to exist and sort of function as an organism in the real world. And so the point of that argument is to say that basically evolution is constrained. And, and if you think about this in terms of other animals, you don't just get donkeys turning into whales very, very quickly. You know, if that's ever going to happen, it's going to happen over the course of a very, very long period of time. And the reason that you know, Micron has appeared with so many mutations, it's probably because it's been floating around replicating itself inside the body of someone with a compromised immune system, which means that the virus has been able to see lots of antibodies, but those antibodies haven't really been strong enough to wipe it out. And one of the important things to remember is that for all the focus that we have on the virus itself and all of the variants that crop up, which is undeniably important, there's a whole other half to the equation of how much damage the virus does. And that's the human immune system, not just on an individual basis, but on a collective basis. The immune system is basically the ecosystem in which the virus is evolving and spreading around. And one of the problems with it is that it's much harder to study than the virus itself at a deep level. And so we know less about it, but that doesn't mean it's not important. It just means that it's uncertain. People are also talking about the Omicron variant possibly escaping the immune system. Have any of the previous variants exhibited any immune escape? They have. And one of the very important things to bear in mind when thinking about Omicron is that those other high immune escape variants did not spread and take over the world. One of them was first spotted in South Africa, Beta. But Beta didn't really spread very far around the world. It did take over South Africa for a while, but ultimately was outcompeted by other viruses, including Alpha, not just Delta. And there was also Gamma and Mu, which completely took over in parts of South America. And we did see cases showing up in places like Canada. And for those viruses which had a lot of mutations, which did escape and antibody sera to some extent, the world was braced for those to take over and they didn't. They only took over within the specific context of the region that they emerged in. Why are different variants dominant in different areas? What, what sort of clues do we have about why that's the case? We really, really don't know. It's one of the big mysteries of the pandemic. One of the possibilities is that 
different people's immune systems get primed against different viruses in different ways in different places. And what that means essentially is that the environment in which the virus both copies itself and spreads is different in, say, South Africa than it is in, say, the United Kingdom. And to one level of speaking, we know this because we know that the UK is older on average, has way more old people proportionally than South Africa does. But other factors could also be in play, such as just having a different priming of the immune system, which means that in one place, the immune system's there because they've seen a different history of viruses. They might be primed to respond well to a given virus, whether it's Omicron or Gamma. In another place, the history that those immune systems have collectively seen might prime them to respond really badly. And so a particular virus for a given immunological state might take over in that place. And the problem with all of this is that we can measure the viruses. We cannot measure accurately and broadly people's immune systems. Hal, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Alec. Ed, Natasha, a large part of the immunological landscape will be determined by vaccine uptake, booster shots, those sorts of things. How well do we know that they've worked so far against previous variants? All the vaccines were designed for the original Wuhan strain. And of course, you know, Delta and others are now the ones that really are spreading around the world uh, fastest. Do we know if they're going to stand up to Omicron too? Well, look, I think we should expect them to work. We just don't know how well. And one of the things we have seen as time goes on is that we've seen vaccines show progressively less efficacy against the sort of more recent variants that we've had. I'm thinking of Delta, for example. And so I think we should expect there to be some reduction in efficacy against Omicron. The thing that strikes me about the vaccines, though, is that they've been able to infect people, but the amounts of serious disease causing admission to hospitals and death has remained relatively low. And so one of the questions is whether with Omicron they continue to show that pattern. Now, Natasha, the biggest vaccine manufacturers are already saying that they can tweak their vaccines in response to the new variant. And they said that from the start. Um, Just explain to us again how easy that is to do and how quickly the new vaccines could be rolled out. Well, it's really easy to make a sort of candidate vaccine. That's the sort of thing that takes weeks. But when companies like Pfizer and Moderna talk about vaccines within 60 to 100 days or from February to March next year, they don't mean that they're going to actually roll out large quantities of this vaccine. So I think we should be thinking, look, by February to March next year, um, we could be in a position where we have a vaccine and one that the regulators approved of in some way. But then the question is manufacturing. And what you have to do in this situation is you're going to have to shut down an existing production line. You're going to have to clean it. Uh, you're going to have to start it up again with the new vaccine and then get that inspected. So I don't think we're going to have significant quantities of a variant vaccine before the middle of next year. And that's if we decide to go ahead. I mean, at every step during the way, we may decide, well, do you know what? The vaccines are good enough and maybe an extra booster shot is the thing to give. So we're sort of still a long way from actually making the decision to go full out on a variant vaccine. 
So there are costs to um, developing brand new vaccines as well, because most of the world still isn't vaccinated against even the original strain. Now, what about the antiviral pills as well? I mean, a few weeks ago, we had several antiviral pills that could be used against COVID-19. We wrote about it as a potential turning point in the pandemic. Do we know if those are going to be still effective against these new strains? Well, the expectation is that they are going to work. So that's great news. Obviously, we don't know for sure, but that is the expectation. And all the drugs that are targeted on the body's response to the virus, I'm thinking here like the steroid, dexamethasone, all of those things are going to work. The issue is the monoclonal antibodies. And so some of the drugs we're using are essentially antibodies designed to lock onto the virus and prevent it from replicating. And these drugs are like the sort of keys that need to fit in the lock, which is the virus. And if the virus changes too much, then there's a question of whether that key is still going to fit. So there is at least theoretically the possibility that these antibody therapies could be less effective. But That said, AstraZeneca, which is working on an antibody cocktail, expects it to work. So we're just going to have to wait and see. Ed, throughout the past year, as various variants have come along, we've been warned by scientists that this is going to keep happening and that we're going to see more of these things than we should be prepared. But it seems still to take people by surprise when potentially variants of concern come along. And I just wonder, as COVID-19 becomes endemic, how do you think the world's response to things like new variants of concern should change? How do you think we should prepare for these things? I agree. It's, just, it's kind of amazing that it's taken everyone by surprise because it was kind of always going to happen, wasn't it? I mean, we know that the vaccines do not prevent cases, uh, not completely, that Delta can sometimes reinfect people. You know, Everybody on the planet is going to encounter this virus sooner or later. And that means if Hal's right and that these new variants are incubated within people with weak immune systems where they can lodge for a number of months and adapt against uh, antibodies and improve their attacks on cells and their mechanisms for injecting their contents into cells. These variants are going to come up again and again and again. You know, the flu virus adapts and you get new variants. Uh, This one's particularly worrying because it has seemed to collect these mutations, but people will get used to that and then they'll move on. This is a pattern that's going to repeat itself. I guess, why does it take us by surprise? I think it's something about the way that this disease, when it starts spreading, it spreads so fast. Cases double and double and double and double. And so it can emerge really quickly. Natasha, does Omicron change, in your view, the exit strategy from the pandemic? We talked about this in the jab towards the end of the run. Does Omicron change things or is it just something you expect along the the normal plan? Well, It perhaps is a sort of bump along the road to endemicity. And so we are expecting that at some point humanity will come to some kind of equilibrium with COVID-19 and you're either going to get infected or get vaccinated or sadly you may pass away. So what Omicron might do is it might evade our immunity in some way and there'll be another sort of spurt of infections around the world causing devastation. But eventually the outcome is likely to be the same, is that we will reach a sort of equilibrium with this virus. It's just a question of how long it will take. Ed, how about you? Does it change the way you think about the end of the uh, pandemic? It doesn't really, no. But it does dramatise, I think, one thing, which is China, particularly, which has a zero COVID strategy. And it further dramatises how hard it is to sustain and then emerge from a zero COVID strategy. I mean, 
if this disease is much more transmissible, it's that much harder to stamp it down to mean that local transmission doesn't occur and you get community transfer. It means that since it's impossible to vaccinate everybody in a country, it's going to have some hesitation. And since we know that the vaccines may be slightly less efficacious, when China finally opens up, as it must do at some point, you're going to get some very, very big numbers of cases there. And I, I think the big bit of unfinished business, really, for the pandemic that's still sitting there and more dramatic than ever is how does China exit uh, its zero COVID strategy? I think that's a good point. I mean, what you have to remember is that China has vaccinated quite well. And the issue now for China is how effective those vaccines are and how quickly they can transition to a different vaccine type because the vaccines they're using, by and large, take quite a long time to create and manufacture. And China may have to rely on Western vaccines to finally get itself out of this pandemic. You're completely right, Natasha. China's got so like 75% of its population over 12 fully vaccinated, but that still leaves, what, 300 million people who aren't? And so under any situation, that leaves a lot of people who are vulnerable. Never mind also the several billion people in the rest of the world who haven't had access to any vaccines whatsoever. This fight is far from over. And with Omicron, it seems we don't know enough to know exactly where it's going to go. It'll take a few more weeks. But um, Natasha, Ed, thank you both for all your insights and laying out all the questions we uh, should be asking in the next few weeks to work out how worried we should really be. So thank you both very much. Thanks, Alok. Thanks, Alok. And thank you for listening to Babbage. There's so much uncertainty surrounding Omicron, but The Economist is here to help. You can read about the potential impact of Omicron on the world's economy, as well as public health, in the upcoming issue of The Economist. Get a special subscription offer by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. And while you're with us, please do let us know what you think on our listener survey. There's a link to both the survey and the subscription deal in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin and mixed by Nico Rovast. Hannah Mourinho is the executive producer. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.